This is the second week of our series that we've entitled, I Can Relate. It's a series on family and relationships. And as we saw last weekend, uh, we talked about Adam and Eve, the first family. And we learned the fact that all of us, when you think about it, we're related because all of us are descendants from Adam and Eve. We're all like cousins. So let's just do this since I didn't give you a chance to greet each other. Everybody just stand up this weekend. Just stand up. All right. Find somebody you've never seen in your life. And just hug them and say, hey, cousin. Hey, cousin. Doesn't that feel good? Doesn't that feel awesome? All right. Don't enjoy it too much. Sit back down. Sit back down. Sit back down. See? See? Did you hear that noise? I mean, we get excited about this stuff. Do you know why? Some of you are thinking, man, I haven't had a hug in a long time. Right. And, and if you're honest, some of you are incredibly lonely, and you might even add isolated individuals. Uh, but as we saw in the video earlier, let me tell you, sometimes most, some of the most lonely, isolated, dejected, struggling people you will ever meet in your life, think about this, they've experienced the joy of marriage. They're engaged in raising children. They attend church regularly. They're plugged into a small group. But now they found, find themselves in an area of life that one recently described to me as, I quote, no man's land. And as the, I talked to them, they said, yeah, often we feel like aliens, second-class citizens. It seems like we don't fit in anywhere. And if you haven't figured out who I'm talking about yet, I'm talking about those heroes around us at all of our campuses this weekend that fall into the category of single parents. And they're involved day in and day out in the exhausting task of raising children all by themselves, which means they have to fill both the roles of mom and dad, counselor and friend, maid, cook, chief, bottle washer, chauffeur, night and day, 24-7, and they do it all by themselves. Let me just give you some statistics on what's happening in America as it relates to the family with single parents. In 1969, 9% of children live with one parent. Today, it's risen to 26%. The number of single father households has increased from about 300,000 in 1960 to more than 2.6 million in 2011. Households headed by fathers now comp comprise 24% of all single parent households. More than 82% of single mothers are divorced, separated, or widowed. Now this is interesting. The median family income in the United States of all households with children is a little over 57,000, 57,100. Look at this. Single mothers that are divorced, separated, or widowed have a median family income of 29000 a year. Single mothers that have never been married have a median family income of $17,400 a year. To put that into perspective, the, the, the poverty threshold in America is about 15500 And then there's the additional stressors. There's the visitation and custody problems. There's the effects of continuing conflict between the parents. There's less opportunity for parents and children to spend time together. There's effects of the breakup on the children's school performance, peer relationships, disruptions of extended family relationships, problems caused by the parents dating and entering new relationships. But you know what's interesting if you think about these individuals? A lot of these individuals, at one time in their life, everything was great. There was money. There were summer vacations. They enjoyed an active social life. Summers weren't as hot. Winters weren't as cold. The schedule wasn't as demanding. Life wasn't as bleak. Dancing with the stars wasn't as pathetic. <laughs> Carolina fans weren't as ob obnoxious. You know, I mean, so there was a time when life was good. It was better. 
but because of irreconcilable differences or maybe circumstances beyond their control. As we're going to see in the life of the prophet Elijah this week, there came a time in their life when the river of life became a little stagnant. And then over time it turned into a trickle. And then eventually it dried up and they realized that their life had changed forever. Now to be honest with you this weekend, I'm talking about an area that I know very little about personally. In all honesty, I probably deserve to be a single parent, but I'm not. I mean, can you imagine being married to me? (laughs) Can you imagine living with me for 38 years, right? But I will say this, by the grace of God, and I should add the patience of Laura, uh, my family and home is still intact. But in a church the size of Hope, I spent a lot of time with single parents. Some of them have never been married. Some of them are widowed. Many of them are divorced. In fact, one pastor gave me this statistic this week that over the past 90 days, we've had over 500 single parents with at least one child under the age of 10 in attendance at Hope Community Church. That's a lot of loneliness. That's a lot of isolation. And I've often said to Laura, I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they they get up in the morning and get their kids out of bed and get them fed and get them dressed, make sure they have lunch, make sure they have the book bag, get them off to school, then go work all day, come home, gather up their children wherever they're scattered, bring them home, feed them, bathe them, make sure their homework is done, their science project is complete, make sure their clothes are laid out for the next day, get them into bed, read them a story, pray with them, get a little bit of sleep, and get up the next morning and do it all over again. I have no idea how they do it. So I'm not even going to pretend that I can imagine what it's like, because I can't. But this is what I believe with all my heart. I believe that whatever stage of life you're in, God's word offers encouragement. So let's look at it this weekend. Now, when I decided to address the topic of single parents, I was drawn to a story. It's found in 1 Kings chapter 17. If you have your Bible, turn there. If you don't know where it is, don't even try. I'll be done by the time you find it, and uh, we'll put the verses up on the screens. Anyway, but this is a story about a single parent who sinks about as low as you can possibly go, but you can't really appreciate the story of this single parent without understanding the role that the prophet Elijah plays in this story. By the way, when it comes to Elijah, we really don't know a whole lot about him. However, if you grew up in church and Sunday school, I mean, he's, he's a big shot. I mean, he, he's right up there with David. He's right up there with Noah. He's right up there with Moses and Abraham. We've all heard about Elijah. But understand, he was an unknown in his day. But you're going to see in this story that he comes out of nowhere to be God's spokesman during a very, very tough time in Israel's history. In fact, we pick up the story in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. It says, now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe. That's all we know about him. That's the first time that he appears in Scripture. That's like saying, Mike, a redneck from Durham. See, it doesn't tell you a whole lot about me, right? But it just says, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab. Now we do know that Ahab is the king of Israel. As the Lord the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Well, if there's not going to be any rain for years, there aren't going to be any crops. If there aren't going to be any crops, there's not going to be any food. And if there's not going to be any food, well, certainly there's going to be a famine. And Elijah tells the king, this is going to last for years. Then it's interesting, in the very next verse, immediately God tells Elijah, run for your life. Why would God do that? It's because God knows 
people do like to shoot the messenger. I can attest to that, right? And according to verse 3, he heads for the Kareth Ravine where he's instructed by God to camp out beside a brook. And God gives him a promise in verse 4. It will be that you shall drink from the brook. And I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and stayed by the brook Kareth, which flows into the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. So every day this prophet would wake up and there would be a raven with like, you know, I don't know, turkey on rye, you know, waiting for him. And then about dinner time, here would come another raven with, you know, roast beef on sourdough. And he had this cool brook that he could drink from. I mean, for a prophet, by prophet standards, life is really, really, really good until... Until one morning Elijah wakes up and he notices that the brook isn't running with the same intensity that it was the day before. And over time it stopped bubbling. Before long it became a trickle. And according to verse 7, one morning Elijah woke up only to discover that there was no water whatsoever. In other words, the brook had dried up. And I thought when I read that, you know, it probably sounds familiar to a lot of you, a lot of us this weekend, regardless of what your situation is in life. I mean, maybe there was a time in your life when you knew the joy of a full bank account. You knew the joy of a vibrant business. You knew the joy of a fulfilling career. But now you look at your life and say, wow, that's pretty descriptive. The brook's dried up. Or maybe a few years ago, your marriage looked like the textbook marriage. But for reasons you still don't understand, it went south. The brook dried up. There's no, there's no water. There's no promise of change or things getting better in your marriage. Or maybe there was a time when you had dreams of a college education. You had big plans for the future. But that's gone now. I mean, the brook dried up. This is what you need to understand. This is what you need to hear this weekend if you don't hear anything else. When the brook dries up in your life, God is still alive and well. When the brook dries up, God knows what he's doing. It's like we sing, he's a good, good father. And that never changes regardless of what's going on in our lives. But I'm going to be honest with you. That's easy to say, but even myself as your pastor, I don't always know that I believe that when my brook dries up. See, my glasses get a little foggy too, and my vision gets a little blurred, and I can't always find God in the situation. In fact, sometimes, I'll just be honest with you, no matter how hard I search, sometimes it just seems like God is just nowhere to be found. You ever feel like that? And I'm no different than you. I pray. I plead, I beg, I bargain, I barter. You ever do that with God? Right. God, if you'll do this, I'll do this. But often, nothing. See? And maybe you've been there. And I'm sure Elijah, he's a prophet, but he's no different. He's still human. I, I guess he had the same thoughts we had. God, what's happened, you know? You told me to come to this brook. I, I obeyed you, and I came out to this stupid brook, right? And you promised me that there was going to be meat and bread and water to drink. God, what happened? Here's the other question we ask ourselves. Why me? Why me? I mean, I think, I think Elijah's saying, hey, God, what's going on? After all, I am a prophet, right? I am on your side. I am on your team. And I don't know a lot of people who would go around delivering these messages of doom and despair. There's going to be a drought. There's going to be a famine. Swine flu. The curse of the hemorrhoids. Whatever it is, God, I'm there. I deliver it. Why me? I don't believe I deserve this. And of course, the third one, God, where are you? God, you made all these promises. Where's the water? God, what's going on? I haven't seen a raven in days. And I think many of us, I'm sure we felt like that at some point in our lives. If you haven't, boy, 
you're very blessed. But I can guarantee you this, every single parent here remembers the moment in life when they realized that the brook had dried up. So you remember exactly where you were when you heard, I'm sorry, we've tried everything possible, but they're gone. And you realize the brook had dried up. Just a few weeks ago, I was standing in the atrium at the Raleigh campus, and a man walked up to me and later introduced to me his daughter, 10 years old, and he shared the story of how just a few weeks earlier, his wife had taken her life and how all of a sudden his brook dried up. And here he was, a single dad raising a 10-year-old girl. See, you remember right where you were when you heard the words, I don't love you anymore, and the brook dried up. You remember right where you were when you heard the words, there's somebody else. And you realize that the brook had dried up. And that's exactly where we find Elijah. The brook has dried up. And just like us, he's disillusioned, he's confused, he doesn't know what's going on, he never saw it coming. And what's odd, he's done exactly what God told him to do. He obeyed God, but now he's sitting beside a dried up brook. But I love what it says in verse 8. The word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zarephath and the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow. And now we're introduced to one of the many single parents in the Bible. But before we talk about her, let me just say a word about the city of Zarephath. The Hebrew word translated Zarephath, the verb is to smelt, to, to melt down, to, to, to melt down ore, ore and steel and metal. But the noun is the crucible. So God tells Elijah, I want you to leave the dried up brook and I want you to go to the crucible. I mean, how encouraging is that, right? And again, I think every single parent can identify with the crucible. You understand the crucible of, of having to sell your house and split up your possessions, you know? You understand the crucible of having to sit down and figure out how to divide up your time that you get to spend with your kids. You understand the crucible of having to pull off the daily demands that have now doubled, you know? You understand living in the crucible of no longer having a social circle to belong to, and, of course, there's the crucible of the financial stress of realizing that you've still got to provide for the needs, the wants, the demands of your kids. But now you're flying solo, whereas you used to be flying tandem, and it's tough, and you never expected to be in this situation. So you've got to understand your situation is no different than this single parent in this story. I'm sure she had known the thrill, the excitement of starting a journey with an individual that I'm sure she thought would never end. I mean, think about it. If you thought starting a family and getting married would end, you wouldn't start a family. You, would, you, would, you, know, you, you just wouldn't even go there, right? But now on top of being alone, on top of being a single parent, she, she faces the increased demands of a guest, some prophet she's never met before. And it's interesting, you're going to see in the story, he seems a little high maintenance. He seems a little presumptuous. You can see the demands in verse 10. He went to Zarephath. He went to the crucible. When Elijah came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. And we get that. The brook dried up. The raven stopped showing up. He's hungry. He's thirsty, verse 13. And then he yells out to her, hey, then make something for yourself and your son. So in verse 10, bring me. Verse 11, bring me. Verse 13, hey, while you're at it, make a little something-something for you and your son, right? But it sounds like your kid, doesn't it? Serve me, give me, take me, you know? Mom, I need $25 for the field trip. Dad, where's my soccer uniform? Did you wash it? I need help with my science project. Can you take me to Billy's house? When are we gonna eat? 
Where are we going to eat? What are we going to eat? Can you bring snacks for the game? All the other parents bring snacks for the game. See, And it never ends. It never ceases. The demands never stop. And then add to that the fact you're doing it all by yourself. On top of that, all of a sudden you're doing it with limited resources. You see that in the story. Verse 12, as surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and to make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it, look at this, and die. Now, it may not be quite that dramatic, but for a lot of you single parents and maybe even married couples, that's where some of you are this weekend. I mean, you're thinking, wow, I got, I got nothing. I have no resources left in the bank. And tomorrow's the first and the rent's due. And on top of that, my kids who go to this church are finding out that the other kids are going to camp this summer. And they want to know, Mom, am I going to be able to go to camp? Dad, am I going to be able to go to camp? I mean, let's face it. Children have a way of not adjusting. We say they're resilient, but children have a way of not understanding. So their demands keep coming. This woman says, listen, sir, I am planning our last meal. And I got no options after that. But Elijah tells us in verse 13, and it sounds so cliche. Look what he says. Don't be afraid. Don't worry about it. Verse 14. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. And you got to understand, at this moment in the story, it's exactly what this single mom, this single parent needs to hear. She needs hope. She needs this kind of faith to rub off on her. She, she needs someone who can instill into her this kind of confidence. So Elijah basically says this, listen, you're going to have all you could possibly need until it rains again. You're going to make it. You're going to be okay. And sometimes that's what a single parent needs. And I love what it says in verse 15. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. I mean, that takes some faith, doesn't it? So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up. The jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. I mean, it was, it was like Bojangles around that house every morning, right? Now, they didn't have a lot of variety. Can you imagine getting up every morning and, and going to the cupboard and there's just enough oil and just, just enough flour to get you through breakfast? And then you put those empty containers back in the cupboard. And you go for dinner. There's just enough flour and just enough oil to get you through dinner. And you wake up the next morning, and the, the vessels that were empty the night before, there's just enough oil, there's just enough flour to get you through today. Not a lot of variety. In the morning, it was water and biscuits. At night, it was biscuits and water. But you know what? They didn't go hungry. And because God provided, it's interesting, her faith began to revive, and her hope was renewed. Maybe, maybe, maybe they'll even live happily ever after, right? Or maybe not. Because one night her son comes into the bedroom and says, Mom, I'm not feeling so good. You ever been there as a parent? When our oldest was born, he's 37 now, we were at Lars' parents' house one night late playing cards about 1130 at night. We looked in an infant seat carrier he was in, blue. I grabbed him. He immediately screamed. We took him to the hospital. He spent a week in the hospital. It happened two more times. They said, he has sudden infant death syndrome, and you were fortunate to be awake and you caught it. 
They fitted him out with a monitor in about 10 months. It never happened again. He was good. Adam was born two weeks old. I came home from work. She said, Laura said, Hank, hold on him for a second. Does he feel warm to you? And I felt warm. He felt very warm to me. And we called the doctor. We took his temperature. And he said, ooh, you need to bring him to the hospital. We got him to the hospital. They ran some tests. Not all conclusive. They said, but we're thinking he may have a, a blood disorder, a blood infection. If so, he'll be dead in 24 hours. Great bedside manner, by the way. But he was fine. But you know what it's like, the, the tension in your shoulders and neck as your stomach knots up. That's what's going on with this lady. And in verse 17, the world comes crashing down around this single mom. It says, he grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. In other words, he died. I mean, things have been bad enough, but now. See, and it's all she can take. Now, this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. And she snaps and she picks up the lifeless body of this little boy. And she goes on the hunt for Elijah. She finds him in verse 18 and she says to him, what do you have against me? And I think she said it like this, man of God. Yeah, right, you know. Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? So she lashes out at really the only one who's trying to help her. I think we've all been there. But Elijah, he just shows maturity. He doesn't try to defend himself. You don't see him trying to defend God. He, he just lets her vent. He lets her get it off her chest. And then when she's finished, he says to her in verse 19, give me your son. Give me your son. And I'm not even sure that Elijah knew at this point what was going to happen. And you, you understand that. If you've ever gotten caught up in a situation where something traumatic has happened, and now you walk into it, right? I'll never forget a few years ago on a Monday morning, the phone rang at the office. My assistant came in and said, there's an ENT on the phone. And evidently, there's a Raleigh policeman who just took his life with his service revolver in his house. The mom's there. They have a one-year-old and a two-year-old. They go to Hope. She wants to see you. And she immediately asked me, who would you like me to send? Because typically, I have a staff of pastors who take care of those day-to-day -day things. It was like God said, no, this one's you. So I got in the car, drove to Nightdale, walked into this scene, which you can only imagine. And it's policemen and EMTs and first responders, and then I kind of make my way through, and I see on the deck, through the, through the doors, a young mom sitting in one of those, you know, resin chairs. And I opened the door, and I walked out, and counselors were there. And she sprung up out of the seat, and she came heading for me, and I kind of spread my arms thinking I was going to embrace her, and she just began to pound on my chest, like so angry at God. So you don't know what to expect. I don't think Elijah knew exactly what was going to happen. But I want you to see he, he still gets personally and intimately involved in this need. Verse 19, give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. Verse 24, then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is truth. And they lived happily ever after. Maybe, maybe. 
Don't you wish every story ended like this one? I mean, wow, I wish I had that kind of power. I love fairy tale endings. Unfortunately, obviously, I don't have that kind of power, and I think we all know that fairy tales aren't real. But there are some incredible stories that we can learn from this story about Elijah and this single parent. Let me just show them to you as I close. Here's the first one. The God who gives the water has the right to shut off the water. And my point is this. I think, especially for those of us who are Christians, I think we live with the feeling that once God has given us the water, he should never take the water from us. See, Once God has given us a mate, he should never take our mate away. Once God has given us a child, he should never take our child away. Once God has given us a great business or a great career, he should never take that business or that career away. And if he does, it's really, really easy for, think, for us to think that, well, God's forgotten me. He's forgotten me. This has been a tough week. But let me show you something that gave me some encouragement. Isaiah 49, verse 14. God is speaking and he says, but Zion said, who's Zion? Those are the Jewish exiles who are now in captivity in Babylon, 586 B.C. You even read about it in school. And this is what they're thinking. The Lord has forsaken me. This is what the exiles are saying. The Lord's forsaken me. The Lord's forgotten me. But this is what God says in return. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? And we would say, that's unheard of. But this is what God says. Though she may forget, even though there's a possibility she might, I will not forget you. He would have said, see, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. See, I'm no different than you. I spent a lot of time this week. I'm not sure I slept past 1.30 this week. You ever have nights like that? Then you get up and turn on something like on HGTV, because if anything will put you back to sleep, that will, right? <laughs> but even that failed to work. And I spent a lot of time saying, God, what's going on? God, what's happening? Where are you? And God brought me back to this passage. I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. Look at the palms of your hand. Come on, look at them. Some of them are dirty. You should wash your hands more. Some of them are smooth. You know, you've never done an honest day's work in your life. Some of them are callous, right? This is what that verse says. You're right there with God. Your life is continually before me. Let me tell you something. There's never a day when God says, where did he go? There's never a day where God says, where is she? Or how did they get over there? It never happens. God always knows exactly what's going on in your life. He is completely aware of the fact that the brook is dried up. So the God who gives the water has the right to shut off the water. Here's the second one. A dried up brook is often a sign of God's pleasure, not disappointment. And if you miss this, you, you miss the, the, the whole point of the story. I mean, think about this. At the height of his life, Abraham is told to take Isaac, his son, through whom he knows the Messiah is supposed to come and sacrifice him. And I guess, I guarantee you, as, as Abraham was walking up that hill with Isaac, and, and Isaac's actually carrying the wood for the fire, and at that point when Abraham 
doesn't know yet that God is going to provide a ram in the thicket? I guarantee this is what Abraham was thinking. My brook is dried up. Or how about the Apostle Paul right in the middle of his first missionary journey? I mean, he's going to get the gospel to the world. That's what he's thinking. Right in the middle of his first missionary journey, he stoned at Lystra and left for dead. And I guarantee you, laying on that pile of rocks, his thought was, wow, my brook is dried up. Or how about Joseph, misjudged, falsely accused, thrown into prison for something he didn't do? I guarantee you, sitting in that cell, from his perspective, he's thinking, my brook is dried up. Let me ask you a question. When Joseph was in that cell, you've read the story, did it mean that God was displeased with him? No. It meant that God was very pleased with him. But it also meant that there was something that he needed to learn in that prison. And God was preparing him to be the second most powerful man, the prime minister, in the most powerful country on the na- uh, powerful nation on the planet at that time. See? A dried up brook is often a sign of God's pleasure, not his disappointment. And then here's the third one. Even when the brook dries up, God is still faithful. He's a good, good father. Now, I can't sit up here like Elijah and tell you that your child's going to come back to life. I can't promise you that one day your spouse is going to return. I can't even promise you that one day you'll be married again. I can't promise you that one day you'll be financially secure. I can't even promise you that, that one day you'll find contentment and joy as you once found it. I can't do that. But what I can tell you is this. God is faithful. He's faithful. And in some way, in some way he'll provide. Sometimes he'll, he'll use someone else. Sometimes he'll use circumstances. Sometimes he may even use a miracle. But I got to tell you, however, however he does it, when the brook dries up in your life, he's going to be faithful. By the way, let me just say, sometimes God wants to provide for single parents through those of us who aren't single parents. And I think we all should be asking the question, what should we do? James says in James 1.27, pure and undefiled religions when you take care of the widows and the orphans. I believe that single parents and their children, they're the widows and orphans of our generation. He says in chapter 2, he says, what good is your faith if you see someone in need and you say, oh, be warm, be filled, God bless you, I'll pray for you, but you don't do anything about it. What good is that? you got to do something about it. And I think what James was saying, sometimes we have to get involved. Sometimes we have to get our hands dirty because understand sometimes what a single parent needs is not more verses. Not another Bible study. Not I'll pray for you. Our man, you know what, hang in there. You know, great advice like that. Sometimes they need us. Sometimes they need our presence. Sometimes they need our comfort. Sometimes they need our support. Sometimes they need something as tangible as financial assistance. Sometimes they need a thoughtful gesture. Sometimes they need a meal you prepared. A few years ago, Laura and I found out about a single mom. And we found out she was struggling and through some finagling and all kinds of different ways, we got a key to her house. And we went out at Christmas and bought her. It was just her and a child. We bought her a dining room set that set four and a little hutch. And we were able to deliver it and put a big red bow on it. She had no idea. Maybe... Maybe there's just some way you could bring some encouragement. Sometimes they need someone who will just love on their children for an evening so they can catch their breath. You know what some of them need? Some of them need you men to step up 
and become small group leaders in Kid City. I cannot tell you how many times moms have told me the only time my child has any contact with a Christian, godly man is when they're in Kid City and there's a man. But we're, we're incredibly low on men. Women love to do it, but not men. But you know, I got a neighbor. He moved here from Connecticut. He now goes to our Apex campus. He's the CEO of two companies. He has a wife and three children. And this week he signed up to be a small group leader for five-year-old boys, right? And my guess is if he can do it, some of you guys could get off your butt and actually do something, you know, other than just coming to church, maybe for the kingdom of God. Maybe that's something you could do. Sometimes understand they do need, they do need our church. And just a few things that we do, and it's nothing substantial, but maybe it would encourage you. On Saturday nights, between our 4.15 and 6 o'clock service, we serve free dinner to all single parents and kids. So if you can come on Saturday night, take advantage of it. We do it. It's for you. It's free. We encourage you to get into a small group. And although we do have small groups just for single moms and single dads, we don't necessarily encourage that because we would rather you be in a small group with other people because we need to know what your needs are so that we can minister. I have a really good friend. She's a single mom. She's been around Hope for a long time. She's in just a small group with a bunch of couples, and they babysit for her. They include her on vacations and trips and all kinds of things, and they rally around her. It's one of the best ways that we can minister to you. If you would like to connect, single moms coming up on June 3rd, we have an event at the North Carolina Art Museum. You can find this stuff on the, uh, on the website. Single men, single fathers, June 8th here at the Raleigh campus. You could find more about that. But how about this? How about if we made sure that this Father's Day and Mother's Day, every single parent was spending that day with their kids with one of us in our home? I mean, good gracious, Laura's family's like a, it's ridiculous. Like 49 kids under three. What's a few more? You know what I'm saying, right? Right? Repaint my house every year, right around Easter, Mother's Day, Father's Day. But uh, that's okay. That's okay. How about this? Summer camp's coming up. Most of our kids here at the church are going to have an opportunity to go to camp. What if you sponsored a child or two for a single parent? Just contact the office. We can help you with that. How about this? How about a small group or a family adopting a single parent family to make sure they get a vacation this summer? See, we take these things for granted, don't we? Some of you have beach houses, mountain houses, lake houses. You probably don't tithe. That's why you have them. But uh, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That was passive aggressive. No, it wasn't even passive. That was full frontal aggressiveness right there. Right there. I'm just jealous. I'm glad you have them. I get to use them sometimes. But anyway. uh, But you know what? I bet it's not being used all the time. What if there was a week you said, Mike, hey, if you know of a single parent, you know. Or what? This is even better. Take them with you. Take them with you. You could do something like that. You think about it. You're, you're more creative than I'll ever be. But, but do something. Take a step. Because let me tell you something what I know about single parents. They don't need our pity. Sometimes they just need hope. Sometimes they just need some encouragement with skin on it. And that's where we get to come in. So we can be a part of the solution of single parents and help them. Help them. So that they can become, with their children, all that God intended them to be. We may be the answer to their prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for this chance to get together today. And Father, just remind us that 
it doesn't mean a whole lot to people to say, bless your heart. I'm going to pray for you. Sometimes we actually have to do something more tangible. And I pray that you would, you would place in our heart the desire to be used by you. To be a part of this great opportunity to impact a family's life for your kingdom. And Father, I pray for the single parents here today who it seems kind of hopeless, no light at the end of the tunnel. That like this song that we're getting ready to sing says, that even if you don't show up, we know you're still God and we trust in you. In your name we pray, amen.